for AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out what the Pima County Public Library's new Synapse team is doing to help ease emotional stress during this holiday season. Author Richard Catcher-Taylor talks about the research that went into his latest field guide called Birds of Arizona. Visit the El Jefe Cat Lounge, a place in Tucson where guests can relax and play among as many as 30 cats and kittens at the same time. And remembering broadcasting pioneer Larry Schneble with a look back at the bucket trip he took for his 90th birthday driving U.S. Highway 89 to revisit a lifetime of memories. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Far too often, mental illness goes unrecognized and undiagnosed. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that in any given year, as many as one in five Americans will experience a form of mental illness. Many will choose to not seek out the help they need because of stigma. In response to these statistics, the Pima County Public Library has established a new internal team that wants to provide support and resources to those who are trying to cope, and they want to start a larger public conversation about the mental and emotional needs that are most prevalent in our community. Next, Leah Britton conducts an interview with someone who's involved. My name is Matthew Landon, and I'm a librarian at Pima County Public Library. I am involved in a group of librarians called the Synapse Team. And what is Synapse, and what do you guys hope to achieve? The Synapse Team is a group of librarians whose mission is to connect our patrons to information about their mental health, to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues, and to be a bridge to our community partners who can further assist with their expertise. We hope for a community where people feel at ease discussing mental health as an essential part of overall health and where people are able to reach out for help when they need it. What kind of harm can that kind of stigma cause in a community? Stigma is, a, is an important issue to consider when you're thinking about mental health. Oftentimes people feel um, uh, a sense of disgrace or shame if they have a mental illness. This comes from society, but this also comes from themselves, their self-image of who they are and what having a mental illness means. Stigma can impact people's ability to reach out for help. Um, There is an alarming statistic where the time between first symptoms and diagnosis of mental illness can be 10 or 11 years, Um, and that's a considerable amount of time. And, And part of the reason that people don't get the help that they need in a timely manner is the stigma associated with mental health. How important is a resource like Synapse to the overall mental health of our community? In the past few years, especially through the pandemic, there's been a growing awareness of the sometimes devastating impact of mental health issues in the community. What started us on our journey to this team was the Surgeon General's advisory late last year on the crisis of youth mental health. 
Even before youth experienced the isolation and social disconnection that the pandemic brought, American youth were in trouble. There was a 54% increase in youth suicide for people age 18 to 24 in the decade leading up to 2020. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for this age group. The library wants to do its part in addressing this crisis meaningfully. Um, the Synapse team is, is involved in curating um, resources and book lists and reaching out to community partners so that we can make people aware of the issue of mental health and its prevalence in our community. What are some other initiatives that you guys have put in place to help that reach that same goal? Um, the Health Action Team is a group of um, 15 interns who are working with writing, art, and the media arts to address the topics of youth mental health, reduce the stigma associated with mental health, and to spread positive messages um, about youth health. We found that the youth are savvy, they're very aware of the situation that they're in, and they're very resilient. Without much prompting, they're able to construct projects and activities that help their own health. Uh, one adventurous teen named Allie on, in our group is starting a podcast devoted to the relationship between BIPOC youth and mental health. And she's um, in the process of recording some of her first episodes as we speak. We have other teens involved in um, uh, zine making for tweens. Uh, zines are, are homemade magazines that were popular in the 80s, and, and they've come back as a, as a low-tech media arts and craft activity where kids can share their ideas, their art, their writing, their comics. Um, another uh, young person working with us is using our 3D printer to print out keychain tags with positive messages about um, youth health and community. We are in the process of getting started with the bookmark project where teens in the health action team each design their own bookmark and these bookmarks will have a positive pro-health message on the back of the bookmark but the front is entirely designed by uh, the teen. We will distribute these bookmarks um, throughout the libraries of Pima County as well as other local organizations. How can our listeners get involved in bettering the mental health of our community? Start with your friends, neighbors, and family. You can listen non-judgmentally to someone and be open to the conversations about mental health that come up. Don't be afraid to ask someone about their health if you think they might be struggling. People sometimes feel like they are carrying a secret when they feel distressed or in bad health. And asking them about their feelings gives them an outlet to share something about themselves that is hard to share. Be empathetic and let them know that they are not alone and that help is available. The holidays are coming up. And we think of the holidays as a joyful time. But the holidays can be a lonely time for some and for other people they can be a source of stress and anxiety. We have a holiday survival kit in the works. The Holiday Survival Kit is designed to provide activities and tips for people to cope with the stress of the holidays. Art is therapeutic, so we put some art activities in the kits, as well as mindfulness breathing and meditation guides. 
for the kits for kids, we included a craft activity to create a worry monster where kids can write down their worries and feed them to the monster. The process of writing down your worries helps put distance between you and what you are worried about, giving you a new perspective. The monster eats your worry rather than you having to continue with that worry. And where can our listeners find more information about Synapse or anything else you talked about today? Anybody listening can go to the Synapse website to get curated book lists, recommendations, connections to our partners. The library website to go to is www.library.pima.gov synapse. That's S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. And if you're interested in the health action team, you can go to www.library.pima.gov slash teen health. That's all one word, teen health. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Matthew. I love everything that you guys are doing for the community, and it's really great work that I'm sure a lot of people are grateful for. It's been an honor for me to talk to you today, and I feel grateful. Birdwatching is one of our state's most popular outdoor activities. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with author and avid birder Richard Catcher Taylor about his latest book. It's a field guide to more than 500 of Arizona's native species, including 17 varieties of hummingbirds, with a lot of new observations about their activities. Rick Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. You have been in Arizona since you were four years old, and you've lived in, or you actually live in a really nice spot. Can you tell us about that location and how that has led to your love or helped in your love of birds? Well, I've actually dwelt in southeastern Arizona my entire life since I was in my early 20s, over 50 years now. I hate to say that. I have been in the Chiricahua Mountains. It's uh, gorgeous. I have black bears and mountain lions and a lot of wild deer and javelina and various other critters show up uh, outside my windows with surpassing regularity. When did the feathered critters show up in your life and why did you take such a liking to birds? I used to work for the Forest Service in a long, long time ago in a distant galaxy. And I was a visitor contact specialist And the largest clientele that we have in uh, the Chiricahuas, especially on the portal side, the eastern side of the Chiricahuas in Cave Creek Canyon, are bird watchers, where we get tens of thousands every year hoping to see elegant trogons and red-faced warblers, painted red starts, uh, a polychrome variety of birds. And these people were the nicest and smartest and most environmentally sensitive user group by far and away that I ever contacted. And I began to think of them as something to look forward to. And I wanted to be useful to them. I wanted to hold up my end of the conversation. About age 22, 
I became intense about learning something about birds, particularly the elegant trogon, and went on with Forest Service's blessing on an eight-year uh, campaign to uh, understand everything about the ecology of elegant trogons. That led me south into the tropics and uh, into uh, looking at bird communities as whole entities. I went from being a beginning birder who loved birds to uh, actually leading tour groups. And not only have you become a lover of birds, but you've also written about them. Uh, the reason you're here is because your most recent book, Birds of Arizona, is just out. Can you tell us about that book, please? It's the book that I always wanted. I always uh, wanted a book that was a handy reference with pictures and maps and elevations, the seasons at which birds occurred and how abundant they were within the season. This book is sort of a dream that I started having in my early 20s and actually found time to write and uh, draw the maps during the pandemic. And what do you think about those of us who live in this state? How lucky are we when it comes to the bird world? Because I know, for example, that we have some of the highest number of species in the United States. We do. Uh, only Texas and California actually have more birds. They're substantially larger than Arizona, and they have coastlines, which we don't quite have the benefit of. We come close. We're only 35 miles away from uh, the outlet of the Colorado River into the Sea of Cortez. Yeah, we, we do very well, and we do particularly well with hummingbirds. We've had 17 species in recent history, and uh, tropical birds overall. We're the northern apex of the Sierra Madre, the northern apex really of the Sonoran Desert and the Chihuahuan Desert, and we have a substantial influence from the Great Basin Desert, from the Rocky Mountains, and from the Great Plains. So you might consider Arizona a geographic axis for North American biomes. And your bird guide will help people if they're out there in different areas of the state? It should help people anywhere in the state of Arizona. All of the regularly occurring and most of the rarities, especially tropical rarities are given a full treatment with um, pictures, text, the seasonality, uh, range map, showing in color the seasons where birds occur in which area of Arizona, and um, even the elevations so that you can zero in on the habitats that are also described. Probably the most unique feature of this book are the uh, seasonal range maps for the species that occur here something that's really never been done. A number of preceding books have had range maps for breeding species, like the uh, Arizona Breeding Bird Atlas, but really there had been nothing like this. And through eBird, which is a global um, bird listing platform hosted by Cornell, I could uh, sift through observations and their maps and this book presents the same information without making five or six computer queries. This compresses all of that data, plus a couple hundred thousand of my own sightings, 
into pretty easily understood maps. And that's something that's never been attempted before for all of the regularly occurring and most of the rare birds found in the state of Arizona. We beat them because we can use the internet, but they can fly. <laughs> so it's a good idea to pay attention to these birds, and not only birds, of course, but other wildlife out there. They, they can surprise us with some very interesting behavior. Much of what we know, I think, about human behavior comes from observation of wildlife. And birds in particular are the easiest form of wildlife to observe because they're diurnal and they do a lot of things that humans do. They like to chatter. They put on uh, nuptial plumage when they go according. They select mates based on a variety of criteria that humans use as well. They live in houses they construct themselves. So, yeah, we get a lot of insights as to into social dynamics amongst humans by close observation of birds. And finally, Rick, I don't want to get too philosophical with you here, but have birds changed your life? Do you feel blessed to have had this affinity, this love for our winged neighbors? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. No, birds enabled me to uh, travel the entire world on the uh, platform of my bird tour company, which is Borderland Tours, I met wonderful people from uh, a huge variety of cultures all over the world. And I got to see most of the megafauna of the planet, tigers and gorillas, lions, you name it. It, it really was a wonderful way to experience the world and to learn about communities of life. Tony Paniagua spoke with author and birding enthusiast Richard Catcher Taylor. Taylor's latest book is Birds of Arizona, published by the R.W. Morse Company. can become pets in some pretty random ways in Tucson. Many are difficult to predict, but a local business located near Glen and Campbell is trying to help prospective cat adopters to meet a wide range of potential adoptees. Or if owning a cat is too much commitment, you can just visit and spend some time relaxing, enjoying feline company. Leah Britton did just that, and she sent back an audio postcard. Hello, I'm Tiffany Lee, and I'm the owner of El Jefe Cat Lounge. We opened three years ago on Halloween. Uh, we survived COVID somehow <laughs> with the uh, the help of, definitely the help of Tucson. We wouldn't have been able to make it if it wasn't such an awesome community that uh, helped us through it. So We keep, on average, 35 uh, adoptable cats, um, and you can come. There's three floors. You can come and play and just lounge with the cats. 
uh, with no guilt to adopt, but the cats are adoptable. And we're at 390 adoptions since we first opened. And we work with Finally My Forever Home Rescue as our rescue partner. So we're kind of like big fosters and we do lots of events. Like tonight we're doing Kitty Haha, which is a local comedy group that comes in. We have six comedians. We also do like yoga with cats, meditation with cats, cat bingo, cat trivia night. And also, of course, there's the cat lounge hour. Hi, uh, my name is Victoria Brown. I am the daughter to the owner of El Jefe Cat Lounge. But you spend a whole hour here, you get to know them, you can pet or play with them. You get a good cat fix. Hi, my name is Kathy Hedrick. I'm a local hobby comic and I come to El Jefe Cat Lounge. I volunteer here two days a week because I hate humans. And every time I come to see the cats, it lowers my blood pressure. I feel better about life and I feel cat-tastic. On Facebook, my friend Mo Urban, who's also a comedian, was talking about uh, places to do in Tucson. And one of her friends said, El Jefe, and I'm like, what is that? And they said, you could pet cats and play with them. And I just fell in love. Since day one, I am hooked. And just how you feel, how relaxed you feel, it gives me a hope that humans will be as good as, as cats are. They're my therapist. They're my friend, they're my doctor, um, they're, my, they're my comedian, they're everything, and I love them. We're actually expanding now. We uh, just signed the lease next door, and so we're going to upgrade to an actual cat cafe. So, uh, we're hoping early next year, we're hoping like January of 2023, we'll be able to open the, the coffee side and we'll actually be a full-fledged cat cafe. Which will be great if you have that one family member that doesn't like cats or you're just allergic so your other friends can go while you chill there. And we'll have more merch over there and we like really exciting what's yet to come. There's a link to the El Jefe Cat Lounge and pictures of some of its current feline residents on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In November, Larry Schneble, a legend in radio and TV broadcasting, passed away at the age of 94. He left behind a large, loving family, more friends and fans than can be counted, and a legion of folks who work in radio and TV who will always consider him a role model and a mentor, including myself. Larry was very humble. He was a charming guy. I once called him Arizona Royalty because his grandparents pioneered the area that is now Sedona. That was, in fact, his grandmother's name. It is also now the name of one of his granddaughters. About four years ago, at his 90th birthday party, Larry told his daughter Lisa, whom he often referred to as Shipmate, that the only thing left on his bucket list was to travel up U.S. Route 89, from Williams, Arizona, to the Canadian border, and revisit many of the places that he had known since childhood. This father-daughter journey would take the Schnebleys more than 3,000 miles round trip. For Larry, it would be through almost 90 years of memories. Test, test, test. Day one, US 89-90 trip. Uh, Dateline Williams, Arizona. We just came up 89 from Prescott to Williams. Could have done 89A over Mingus or 89 through Ash Fork and chose 89 through Ash Fork. And this is the main drag at about 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. From both the sound and the sight, 
It could be pretty much any small town in Arizona, except for the fact that this is surrounded by pine-covered hills, and if the motel next to me weren't there, I could see Bill Williams Mountain from where I'm standing. I want to come back in and ask Larry a little bit about how we got ourselves here. We are on our way to the end of Highway 89, which is someplace in Montana. What's the point to this? How did you well, because it? east of here, about 20 miles, is a place called Parks, which when I was a little boy was a place that I went to school and I grew up. Parks was on Highway 89, and the rest of the time that I spent in northern Arizona was in Sedona on Highway 89A, and I've never been north of Salt Lake City on Highway 89A, which is what we are doing now. And that's how I happen to be in Williams, Arizona. When we were driving up here, you knew the name of the, was it Granite Spring River? Names seem to come back when you're someplace. Yes, and Paulden, P-A-U-L-D-E-N, was a railroad name given to a little junction point at the Santa Fe Railroad when they were building a spur line that led south to Prescott, which was the territorial capital of the territory of Arizona. And eventually that same line concluded down in Phoenix. And Granite Creek runs through Prescott. And then while we're on that, tell me about Eisenhower's freeway. The Eisenhower freeway plan was to equip us intercontinentally with highway lines that would enable troop movements rapidly from east to west. And as much as many things have been improved due to military intervention, that is one of them. We're on Highway 89-66-I-40. <laughs> and then the last thing about Eisenhower, one mile every so often has to be flat? Every five miles is supposed to be capable of handling on a straightaway a landing aircraft that might have difficulty, and that's another gift, I think, from the military. We had planned to end day one by going to Rod's Steakhouse, because that's where my folks went on their wedding night in 1953. But we discover it's now closed on Sunday. We're meeting Bill and Ginny Williams for dinner. My parents, Lee and Larry, were in charge of Bill's dorm in college on what's now the NAU campus. Ginny suggests Pine Country Cafe. They have good pie, she adds. That perks me up, because pie is a Larry thing and a Northern Arizona thing. It reminds him of ranchers in the early years having pie with breakfast to get them through a long day. Since we have a long day tomorrow, we come back to the hotel after our pie. We go to bed. We hear one train. We smile. We sleep. That was day one of the 8990 road trip, played in honor of the late Larry Schneebly. You can listen to all six parts on a dedicated webpage at azpm.org, including Lisa Schneebly Heidinger's travel diary and many photos from the journey. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. Our news director is Christopher Conover. 
Music by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.